Good morning. My name is Ryan, and uh, it's a joy, as Kent said, an honor to uh, get to serve as one of the pastors here at City Church, and uh, so grateful um, that you're here with us this morning. Um, continuing in uh, where, in some ways, we Caleb began last week. It was our senior Sunday. If you weren't here with us last weekend, uh, we uh, just spoke a blessing and prayer over our students as they were being uh, prepared to launch out into whatever God might lead them to in life. Um, and uh, it's something we do just to celebrate those graduates. And it was a, a beautiful day. Um, and as I thought about that, it, it, it dawned on me that there are many of us, grandmas, uh, grandpas, aunts, uncles, parents, who um, aren't quite there yet, uh, maybe are preparing for those days. Um, and uh, beyond that, there are many of us, um, all of us, in fact, are either friends or neighbors or brothers, sisters, in some way relationally connected to other people. And as we spoke this word of blessing over these students and, and asking God to use them, um, isn't that the aspiration that we have for every person that we would ever come in contact with, that we might be used by God to impart his love and his grace into their lives in such a way that they would be transformed and renewed. And so... Um, prepared a, a message from uh, 2 Timothy. Um, we're going to look at that text, I hope, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses, verses 3 through 14. But um, I felt compelled, um, considering the events of this week, that we needed to begin um, our time together in prayer. You know, this uh, weekend we honor and remember those who gave their lives for our nation so that we could worship freely here this morning. Um, but we do that in the midst of a week where tremendous tragedy has struck our nation. And you wouldn't be alone. You'd at least be with me if you asked why men and women have to die so that people can freely gather and worship. Or why evil could exist in the world, such a great evil that babies could be slaughtered in their classrooms. Why? And I wish I could stand before you. In some ways, I understand a little bit of the weight of responsibility to, to try and maybe help you find an answer to those questions. And um, we can strive along to figure that out at some other point, but um, this morning and initially, um, I don't have any political hot takes for you. I don't have answers to the great problems that grieve this world, the brokenness that exists. Um, I don't know what should be done. Yes, I'm sure there are things that could be done, but I know the proper Christian response, and the proper Christian response is to lament, it's to grieve. When I thought about that word lament, what I realized is that it's something that all too often we have forgotten how to do, perhaps have never even heard the language of lament used in the church, and that's unfortunate. Because lament is taking our grief and giving it to someone who can actually do something with it, do something about it. Um, and so the reason I say it's the proper Christian thing to do 
It's because when we lament, we turn our hearts to God. When we see evidences of such great and grievous sin and brokenness in this world, it's right that we turn our thoughts to God, our hearts to God. And I get that we may be mocked for doing that. But when we do that, we are turning our hearts to the only one who has any power to do anything about this brokenness. And through Christ, as Christians, we know has done something about the brokenness of this world. A third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. God's people crying out to God in grief over the circumstances that they find themselves in or that they see in the world. And yet how often do we do that? We are quick to provide answers, to give our thoughts, to think that we have everything figured out, but how often do we lament the brokenness, the sin in our own hearts and in the hearts of others? Lamentations, I know when we came to that in our Bible reading plan, you were, let's get through this one quickly, please, Lord. It's a whole book of lament, Israel grieving the state of Jerusalem, the condition of the city. Jesus laments over the condition of the souls of those that were so close to him as he goes to the cross. So lament is a proper and a right Christian response. So to help us in this, I, um, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 13. Just six verses, a very short psalm, but a psalm of lament. And this morning, what I'd like to do as we begin this time together is to spend some time lamenting and grieving over the loss of life in Uvalde and lifting up those in that community and all that is going on there. But I also hope that this might be in some ways a teaching moment for you of where to go in your grief beyond whatever has happened this week, I would guess that you have walked through, maybe in this moment, walking through something that you're wondering, why God, where are you, how am I supposed to make it through? And so I pray that this psalm, as we look at it, it might teach us how we can turn to God and we can rightly lament the world we live in. Romans 8 talks about the creation groaning. And we should join with creation, groaning for Christ to make all things new. That's the proper Christian response. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am forsaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
In those six little verses, God teaches us how to lament. The psalmist does it for us. In verse 1, he turns his heart to God. How long, O Lord? He cries out to God. In verse 2, he makes his complaint to God. I know you hear that, and there's perhaps some of you who think, Are we, we can't complain to God. We, that's Surely that's sacrilegious. Friend, our God is big enough to take every question, every doubt, every anxiety, whatever it is, he is not shaken by our questions. He is not shaken by our complaints. In fact, he, Jesus, we know, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, grieving with us. So, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He makes his complaint to God. And then in verse 3 and 4, he does another thing that we sometimes, I think, are fearful to do. He asks boldly for God to do something. He asks for help. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He makes his request, and he does so boldly. And that boldness comes from what he says in verse 5, that he has trusted in the Lord. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And because of that trust, that complaint in verse 3 is joined with a song of worship. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We can know that in six verses of the psalmist crying out, the answer did not come. The solution wasn't found. But as he cried out to God, made his complaint to the Lord, asked the Lord for help, he was reminded of who will give an answer. And he was reminded of who God is. And he was reminded to worship. This is why we lament. Because it takes our grief, it takes our hearts to the Lord. So trust in God. Make your complaint to God. Ask boldly for help from God. Trust God. And then worship God as he delivers so let's spend time in prayer. I just want to invite you, ask Matt to stay up so that we could just spend some time together in prayer. Lamenting the evil in this world and specifically the evil manifested in Uvalde. Lifting up those families who are grieving an unbelievable grief. How long, O oh Lord, will evil reign in our world, in our nation? How long must we grieve 
the deaths of so many, specifically 21 innocent souls this week. How long, God? Our hearts break within us. So we cry out to you. God, we're frustrated. Why must the brokenness of this world be so evident? Why is there evil? Why does it seem to tear us apart? I don't understand, God. But I do know who you are. I do know that you are good. So I ask with great confidence in your goodness, even when everything seems to testify to evil ruling this world, God, I pray that your power and your spirit would reign over the community of Uvalde, specifically those 21 families who are grieving an unbelievable grief in this very moment, who are no longer even able to cry because they have run out of tears. Would you minister to them this morning, Lord, as only you can? In some miraculous way, would you allow your church in that community to just rise up as your hands and feet, Jesus, to encircle and to lift the weary heads of those who lost loved ones, who are preparing this week to bury their babies. God, we cannot comprehend, but we ask for your help. I ask for help for our sister Marie, who is there with those families, with the community, helping them grieve. Pray that she and all those who have arrive there to counsel. Would you just be with them, give them endurance. Help them, God. God, we cry out to you because we trust in your steadfast love. And we trust in the truth that one day we will rejoice in our salvation. We will one day be with you and you have promised that there will be no more death and that you will wipe away every tear and you will bind up every wound and so we trust in that hope even as we grieve as we are so frustrated as we wait for you and plead with you Jesus to come quickly we do so trusting you and with confidence in your love 
Would you turn that trust, even this morning, in our hearts, in the singing of you and singing your praises? As we cry out to you with broken hearts, would you somehow use these cries and these pleas for help to testify to a broken world that there is hope. Our hope is found in you, Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. In your mighty name. Amen. If you want to turn now with what time I have left, I want us to look at 2 Timothy. And as I said, I was thinking about our seniors and those students that we blessed last weekend. And for those of you that don't know, I'm a dad of three sons. And when I think about my sons, and then I think about those students by extension, and then I think about all of you and your families and the lives that you will touch, that you're a part of, there's nothing more that I want for my sons and for all of us than to be people who have a faith that sustains them in all that life might bring, even as we just talked about tremendous hardship and brokenness in the face of evil. I want them to have faith. I want you to have faith in Almighty God. I want that faith to sustain you. But one of the things that sometimes can happen, and I, I just, I don't know if any other parent, grandparent, brother, sister, aunt, uncle in the room might have experienced this, but, but I can want these things for my children so much that my focus and my attention becomes directed mostly towards them and what they are doing, and I lose sight of what I want most for them is rooted in me understanding most what God has already done for me and in my life, and that being an overflow of what I share with them, what I, how I, my life is used in their lives, and all of those things. As we were singing my Oldest two are preparing for um, some busy summers and some heavy lifting of just in terms of work and what they're going to be doing and um, serving at a camp. And I was praying and just thinking of them as we were singing that song, Abide. And I was praying that they would abide. And it, even there, it struck me. I, I, yes, I want them, Lord, to abide. I want them to depend on you, Lord. I want all of those things for my sons this, this summer and really all the days of their lives. But I need to be one who is abiding. I need to be one who is dependent upon the Lord. That is where the source, and those two are launched and they're now living out their faith completely independent of me. But for our young ones, and for those that are coming up behind us, the next generation, for my neighbors, for my friends, if I want my neighbor to one day know what it looks like, what it, it, to experience depending on Jesus and finding him to be faithful, I must be a disciple who abides, who is dependent Upon Jesus. 
And Caleb gave this great charge last week. If you didn't miss that message, I'd encourage you to go back to our podcast and listen to that. But he gave this charge of blessing and challenge to the students as they were preparing to go wherever God might be leading them. And he talked about choosing teachers and the influences in your life wisely. But before that, there are many people who are under our influence, who we can be teachers of. As we look at 2 Timothy, Caleb used this text from Timothy, and Timothy has a picture of Paul pouring into his young disciple, Timothy, who was then used in a powerful way by God. I want to go to 2 Timothy 1, where we see the foundation of Timothy's faith. And my prayer would be that it would be, uh, in some ways, informative for us as we strive to pass on and make disciples of those people in our lives. Obviously, this is written about a son relating to his mother and grandmother, as we're going to hear in just a moment. But this can apply, this applies to every single one of us. Whether you're a mother, a grandmother, a father, a grandfather, an aunt, or an uncle, maybe just a friend or a neighbor, there are people in your lives that only you have relationships with in such a way that God could use you to point them to Christ. One of the things I love is I consider every Sunday morning, we're singing the doxology. I step down as I will do here at the end of this service. And in my heart and mind, I know that every single one of you is going out into the world and you will go places that I won't go this week. You will do things that I won't do. You will take the gospel to places that I won't go. What an amazing truth that is, is we spread during the week and take the hope of Christ to the world. That is what the church does. We come back wounded, a little beat up. We remind ourselves of what is true, and then we go back out. Is this constant coming and going. And so no matter who you interact with, whether you're a parent or not, we all have people who we hope might be in some ways influenced by us to know Jesus in a real and transformative way. And we can be instructed by Paul's words to Timothy. I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience As I remember you constantly, Paul talking about remembering Timothy constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. As we see this text, we see that Paul is giving thanks to Timothy, thanks to God for Timothy and what, what God has done in Timothy's life and how God is at work in Timothy's life and he longs to be with him. They're separated. Paul is in prison and he's writing this letter to him and he just wants to encourage him in his ministry and he reminds him of the source of that ministry. He reminds him of the source of his faith. Timothy had a powerful ministry. He was used by God in many great ways and that's why Paul was so thankful for him. But that started with deposits that were made by his grandmother and his mother. Perhaps for you, think of it in this way. That started with deposits that were made by or will be made in your neighbor's life or in your friend's life, in your co-worker's life, in your fellow classmate's life, whoever you interact with. What are these deposits? 
And there's three things that we see about Lois and Eunice's faith that was deposited into Timothy's life. First, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And he says that this is what dwells now in Timothy, but it started with Eunice and Lois. It was a sincere faith. Another way to describe that would be genuine faith. I learned of a new thing this week, and what this kind of helped me in this is this isn't the Instagram faith, the, the well-curated, you know, perfect little picture that you apply the right filters to, sort of add the right background lighting, maybe a few plants, whatever it is that sort of makes it look right. This is the be real faith. Only the kids know what that is, all right? That's, there's some new app, and it's, just, it's not any of that fake stuff because they've realized how fake is fake, and they don't want that. It's a sincere faith is what he's saying. This is a sincere faith, a genuine faith, not a fraudulent faith. Kids especially in our own homes, brothers and sisters, they can smell a fraud. They know when faith is sincere or not, when faith is just something we do on Sunday mornings and not at all another part of our life doesn't affect how mom and dad talk with one another, doesn't affect how dad does this, mom does that, doesn't impact any other areas of our lives. They see that. Our neighbors do as well. Sometimes my wife, bless her, in her desire to um, be frugal, will bring home the generic um, cereal or other products. We all know why they're generic. They're terrible. They're fraudulent. I don't know what fake Cinnamon Toast Crunch is, but it ain't Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I know a fake. I don't even have to taste it. I can just see it. Those flakes are not crispy. In the same way, those that are surround us and do life with us, that are close with us, again, family members, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbors, friends, and coworkers, they know whether our faith is sincere or whether it's merely a Bible propped up on a desk, a scripture verse hanging on the entryway to our home. This is why every pastor that you've ever met, if you haven't, if you've met any others besides me, I'm sure has told you of the importance of gathering with the saints on Sundays and in other times because we can't be equipped and grow and matured in our faith without this gathering. And it's something that helps us to set our calendars. God gave us this day to set apart from all of the rest of the world. So we look at our calendars and we ask. We look at our checkbook, checkbooks and we ask, where is our faith? What is our hope found in? And then we flip that around and the same pastors will also tell you that if your faith is merely something that you practice on Sunday mornings, that also is not sincere. We must be people who live out what we profess to believe every day in every moment of our lives. This is what a sincere faith looks like. And if we want our faith to be transferable and for others to look at our lives and say there is something there, there's something that sets them apart, the way they interact with me, the way they interact with the world, the way they carry themselves, all of those things, there is something unique and different. That is the result of a sincere and genuine faith 
in Christ. Next he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And then he says, a faith, and he points to Eunice and Lois, a faith that dwelt within his grandmother and mother. This idea of faith that dwells. There's so much more depth to that word, isn't there, than just, re- or just, just residing or sort of being a part of. But this faith dwelt in them deeply and richly. This faith, because it dwelt so richly in them, it manifested itself to others around them. It was evident. This is why we often say, you've heard me say this many times before, but your faith is very personal, but your faith is not private. The world wants to tell us that our faith must be private, must be isolated. It is not possible for a Christian who's dwelling richly in the things of God for our faith to not manifest itself in all the ways that we live. I think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And on his law, on his word, he meditates day and night. And this is what it says, the psalmist says about this believer who doesn't basically spend his time worrying about all the things of the world, but spends his time in the word of God and considering who God is and allowing that to influence all the things that he does. He is like a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water where deep roots grow. And because of those deep roots, because of that dwelling, it yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. It yields fruit. Notice this as well. That's quite the tree. It's an evergreen that produces fruit. It's always green. There is always life in it, even when the hardships come. Even when pain and suffering come, there is still life because Christ dwells in him. And that dwelling of Christ in him produces fruit. There's evidence of that faith. There's evidence of Christ at work in you. Lois and Eunice had a sincere faith and that faith dwelt deeply in their souls. And because of that, we see that Timothy was influenced and his life was changed. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Are you sure that your children have a sincere faith A genuine faith that when they leave your supervision will continue on to grow and to flourish. Caleb shared that horrible statistic that so many young people, when they leave their parents' influence, they walk away from Christ. They walk away from the church. Now, we know that the reality is that they were not in Christ. It's not possible for them to walk away if they've been in Christ. 
But what that tells us is there are many in our midst who profess and say, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I'm following Jesus, and there's no evidence of that redemption, that transformative power of Christ in their life. This should give us pause, friends. This should cause us to be concerned. What type of faith are we passing on that is so fickle that the moment there's any challenge to it, that there's anything that the world pushes back against it, that they would say, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't need that. That's not helpful to me. That's not a faith that dwells in us as his disciples that is sincere and genuine. A sincere faith and a genuine faith through the power of the Spirit will be passed on will become contagious to those around us. Is your faith contagious to those others that are in life with you? Again, whether it's your kids or whether it's your coworkers, whether it's your friends that you spend Friday evenings with, is it contagious to them? Do they see God at work in your life in such a way that they desire to have something of that? They want to know what that is? This is what we are called to. Now, here's what we also know. Everything that was going on in Timothy's life, notice Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, and then he gets to Timothy as part of his thanks to God. Timothy's faith and what Timothy, the evidence of Timothy's faith and all of the ministry that Timothy had, that is a work of God's grace in Timothy's life. Eunice and Lois were a part of that. They lived their faith in such a sincere and genuine way that it became contagious to them. But it's God's grace in Timothy's life that produced that fruit. But what was the source of tilling up the soil of his heart? I think about my mom. My mom wasn't the person in my life who when I began to wrestle with God and trying to understand what it would mean to be a Christ follower, I didn't talk to her about that. She didn't, I didn't sit down with her in her bed and pray to give my life to Christ or to receive Christ in my life. But my mom had a sincere and genuine faith in Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit of God began to draw me into relationship with himself. The soil of my heart had been tilled up for years after year after year because of her faith. I had words to put with what was wrestling and the tension in my soul. 17-year-old young men don't say I was feeling convicted. That's because my mom in her faith, I had heard that language before. I, be, I could understand what she was wrestling with. I could understand how she had done that. She had modeled that for me. I knew where to turn. I knew who to run to. I knew I could go to this God that I didn't quite understand, that I didn't really grasp all that he was doing in my life, but I knew that because my heart was tender to the things of the faith. She had made her faith contagious. So when the Holy Spirit of God began to move on my life, 
I understood. I'd ask, is our faith contagious? We've talked a lot about contagiousness in the last couple of years. I would hope that the genuine faith of each and every believer in this room would be more contagious, more infectious than any disease that ever existed in the face of the world. That people would see us and see how we live, how we interact and how we deal with all of the trials and the struggles of this life. And they might have questions. They might wonder. Our worship team is going to come and lead us in a song as we close. And as they come, this is my prayer for each and every one of us. Taken again straight from Scripture. I thank God, whom I serve, as I remember you, City Church, constantly in my prayers night and day. As I often think of you and remember you even with tears, I pray that you would be filled with joy, that you would have a sincere faith, a genuine faith, a faith that dwells in you in such a way that it becomes contagious to the world around you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. God's grace and his mercy on your life is evident in so many ways. Holy Spirit of God, would you fan it into flame? Even those small sparks of faith, would you ignite them in our hearts so that we might be sincere witnesses to the power of Christ in a world that so desperately needs to know who you are. And I pray all of this with confidence that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is faithful. May we be people who are found faithful with a deep and rich faith dwelling in us a sincere faith lived out in all that we do so that the world might know of the fame of Jesus and might trust him. Let's respond to Jesus and sing. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.